they really should be part of what governments define as success rather than solely economic activity. So I think our well-being as a society would really increase if um, governments looked at economic success in that more holistic way. Yeah. Welcome to Hello Climate Calling, the climate change podcast by the Embassy of Finland in London and the British Embassy in Helsinki. We are on a quest to find out climate solutions and shed light on the people and projects working around the clock to secure a more sustainable world. My name is Heli Suominen and I'm your host today. In this episode, we will be looking at the planetary boundaries and the economics of biodiversity. I will be speaking with Rebecca Noll, who worked as a science advisor on the Dasgupta Review and who is currently an associate at the London-based Systemic, a think tank focusing on climate risks. It's great to have you here, Rebecca. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Rebecca, you helped put together the findings of the Dasgupta Review, which was commissioned by the UK Treasury. And the report was considered a landmark review of the economics of biodiversity, described in the report as the most precious asset in our global portfolio. The report actually uses very business-like terms to describe our natural world. Can you explain what the reasoning there was? Well, really, it was all about trying to make decision makers recognize the value of nature. And I can see that putting nature in those terms can seem um, to be commodifying or um, putting kind of monetary, exclusively monetary values to nature. But that really wasn't the intention. It was really to get people, especially decision makers, to think of nature in a value-based way. Yeah, just to kind of recognize its importance and frame its importance in language which would resonate with them. Yeah, and the review concludes that actually the humanities approach this far to economics and how we have measured success are actually to blame for the loss of biodiversity. What exactly are we getting wrong here? So I think it's all about the way that we measure economics and economic success currently is very dependent on ever-increasing consumption. So we say that economic success is activity increasing, which is often associated with increases in what people are buying and consuming. And we know that that is one of the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss, nature loss, um, and also is associated with big drivers of the other planetary boundaries like climate and pollution, they all have these common drivers in our unsustainable production and consumption patterns. Um, so really, we're saying with success is, um, you know, using more and more of our finite natural resources. So I think that's really what the review is saying that we've got wrong and that success needs to change to reflect um, conserving what our economies and societies actually rely on, which is these natural systems, the climate, biodiversity, um, and the other planetary boundaries, which kind of keep us in this stable planetary state that we've been lucky enough to be in for yeah. the last 10,000 years um, or so. 
this is all very um, big picture yeah. and um, general terms. Mm. Can you point what could be kind of the concrete change that yeah. that you would be after instead of measuring GDP? What should be done, for example? So one of the kind of big options for change that the review puts forward is that we could move towards measuring um, economic success in a more inclusive way and include wealth as well as activity. So um, the review suggests moving towards a more, they call it inclusive wealth. Um, And there's a lot of work which has already been done to kind of frame what inclusive wealth means. But basically it's measuring the kind of capital assets in three different ways. So um, produced capital, which is, you know, our infrastructure, um, natural capital, the nature which we rely on, and natural systems which, you know, we really do depend on, and also human capital, so human health, um, education, skills, and all those three things are interrelated in complex ways, but they really should be part of what governments define as success rather than solely um, economic activity. So I think our well-being as a society would really increase if um, governments looked at economic success in that more holistic way. Yeah. And you are a biologist uh, yeah, by training. Yeah. Uh, can you just explain to, uh, in layman terms, uh, why is biodiversity so closely linked to climate change? Well, I mean, they're closely linked as earth systems and climate change drives nature loss in many complex ways. Also, biodiversity and nature um, can be a really, really powerful and cost-effective solution for climate change. So we know that the natural world is an enormous carbon sink and has a hugely important role to play in regulating our climate and keeping it stable. Um, Also, for policymakers, a really, really important thing to say about the relationship between biodiversity and climate change is that they um, face common drivers, you know, their destruction, biodiversity loss and and climate change um, are both the result of the common drivers of our unsustainable resource use and production and consumption patterns. So a lot of the solutions which we can apply will, you know, solve both of the problems jointly. So I think, yeah, they depend on each other and also the solutions can be common to both yeah. of them. Uh, the Das Gutter Review was published earlier this year. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of news articles, a lot of discussions uh, about it. Um, but would you say, is there a growing sense of urgency about biodiversity? There's more talk about it. And for example, Finland included halting the loss of biodiversity in its governmental program already in 2019. Mm. But what would you say about this time we're living now? I think... Well, I mean, I don't know if it's just because I'm working close to it, so I'm mm. kind of seeing these activities. But I do feel like there is an increasing sense that action really, really does need to be taken. And there's a massive opportunity um, coming up with the Convention on Biological Diversities COP next year in, in Kunming, um, which will set new global biodiversity targets. So there's a huge opportunity for the world there. Um There's the Neat Leaders Pledge for Nature, which loads of governments have signed up to to try and halt and reverse um, biodiversity loss in the next decade. The G7 signed the G7 Nature Compact, which also looks at trying to halt and reverse biodiversity loss. So I think we are seeing 
decision makers at the highest level you know, really kind of state that they do have ambition there. But I think what we really have to hold them to account on is acting on the drivers of biodiversity loss. So Um, not just talk about also acting. Uh, Was the fact that the Dasgupta review was commissioned by the British Treasury, was that also some kind of sign of a sense of an urgency? I think so, because I think it's the first time, I think it's the first time that an economics and finance ministry Um, was commissioned to look at this problem and look in depth at the relationship between nature and economics and what it would mean for economic policy to take nature seriously. Um, So I think that does represent a kind of change and maybe a recognition from the economics world that actually, you know, our economies do depend on nature, so we should really start taking it seriously in policy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned that we need actions. What could be some uh, real examples of things that governments could be doing right now to slow down the use of our natural resources? Well, I think there are a lot of things um, which can be done on conservation. And we know that the world will probably sign up to um, protect 30% of land and sea by, by 2030 in the next kind of big set of global biodiversity targets. But what about the 70% that's not within that protected area? Um, we really need to address the drivers, which are the way our economic activities affect nature. So I think there's a lot that governments can do to address the way that supply chains interact with nature. So businesses should be um, taking seriously their risk and dependency on biodiversity and also their impact on biodiversity. I think governments can be, and you see some examples of this, things like deforestation-free supply chains, where governments are enforcing strong due diligence standards on um, maximum levels of habitat destruction, which can be in a supply chain. I think that's definitely important. There are also tax incentives which could be changed Um, and also what governments kind of pay for and subsidise. So the money they take from tax, but also the money they give out. And we've actually got a little section on this in the Dusgipta Review, which talks about um, the level which harmful economic activity is subsidised, which goes into the trillions, I think. It's a really, really large number. Um, and the level which governments actually pay to protect biodiversity and support its sustainable use is completely dwarfed by that huge figure of harmful subsidies. So there's definitely something which can be done to reform where government support is channeled to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're seeing a little bit of that in the UK with the um, reform of agricultural subsidies. So they'll be channeled towards um, payment for ecosystem services. So farmers will get money for... Um, the kind of natural benefits that they're providing people rather than just uh, the amount of land or, or amount of, of production. Yeah. Can you think of other good examples across the globe about um, countries that are working to protect their own biodiversity? Um, well, I think there are some good examples from Finland, um, <laughs> where, uh, which which um, is fantastic because obviously it's like a really, really um, kind of special forest biome there. So there are some great sustainable forestry practices going on, um, big efforts to protect 
forest as well as use it for production. And I think that is the kind of approach which will deliver benefits for people and for nature simultaneously. So um, whereas these sustainable forestry practices are doing, you're trying to balance delivery of different ecosystem services. So keep the really important regulating services, which that ecosystem is providing, like water quality or air quality, and also get some of the provisioning service, like, so in this forestry example, it would be timber production. And by managing the forest sustainably, keeping as much of the forest as possible intact, I think we can see from some of those Finnish examples that that is possible and it is achievable. And I think there are also some great examples from Finland of um, particular species being protected, um, like the white-tailed eagle, which was down to, you know, four chicks a year being hatched and due to decades of targeted conservation action is now no longer even considered a threatened species. Um, so I think there are some great examples of, of, of things like that going on. So it's very much about governments, yes. also international community. Yeah, totally. What about individuals? Mm. What kind of agency individuals can have or should have? Yeah, I think that individuals do have a role to play in this, but I think it's really important to point out that our decisions are completely driven by the environment that we're operating in. So as individuals, we're responding to the signals which the market is giving us. And pricing decisions are really important here. So even though I'm someone who like really, really cares about this, but I'm still responding to the kind of economic incentives that I'm being given. So I think one example, food pricing is obviously important. Um, the pricing of our of our transport and mobility systems is really important. So I always think it's crazy that, you know, a domestic train will be far more expensive than um, a return flight to you know, somewhere in Europe, which will be actually quite far away. So I think that individuals do have agency here to um, consume responsibly, but governments have a lot, which I think they should do, to um, send the right pricing signals um, and make sure that we're operating in an environment which shows the value of, of nature. Yeah. So I think pricing signals yeah. really do like need to change. Most consumers say that yeah. sustainability is important totally. and they would like to have sustainable products. Yeah. But then how much more they are willing to pay for those products is kind of exactly. another question. Exactly. Kind of really, yeah. Uh, yeah. really um, has, has Yeah. Impact. So it's all very well governments kind of trying to encourage people to change. But unless that goes hand in hand with um, real signals about what government itself is valuing, then... It will always yeah. Yeah, be hindered. Yeah. And it's also about us citizens. Um, what kind of decisions we demand from our governments. Um, according to some research, um, nature experiences can increase personal commitment to biodiversity conservation. Here in the UK, we're recording this uh, in London. Uh, most people live in towns and cities. In Finland also, but at the same time, half of all Finns actually live a maximum of 200 meters away from the closest forest. Rebecca, what would you say, um, can getting closer to the nature help us understand and be motivated about the change that is needed? And how can you do it in cities? 
Yeah, it's such a great question because I think there's loads of evidence about the um, mental health and well-being benefits of being close to nature and spending time in green space. And I think it's even medically prescribed now in the UK that, you know, you can improve your mental health by spending some time in nature. And so I think it's really important. And it was also there kind of present in the options for change of the review that educating people about nature and making sure that it's part of your education and life from the youngest age will hopefully make future generations really be growing up with that appreciation of the importance of nature. And in cities, I think it's actually amazing the kind of richness of nature which you can get in such a small space. Through lockdown, I've been walking in the park that I live near every day. Like all of us. Exactly, like everyone has been. And um, it's amazing to see the like richness of life there, even in that small urban park. You know, there are herons, there's so much different bird life, and um, you can benefit from it even kind of among a broadly urban uh, space. Yeah. Uh, I think it's time to start wrapping up. Uh, Rebecca, my final question for you actually concerns this. Um, could you share a nature experience, a personal one, that really left a mark um, in your childhood or last week, uh, something that you still cherish? That's a great question. And I think I was lucky enough to grow up um, in Northumberland, in the kind of rural area in the north of the UK where... Um, And there was a lot of nature around. And so I feel like I've got many memories of um, being lucky enough to see, you know, red squirrels and otters like right on my doorstep, which was wonderful. But I think those early memories, which kind of really inspired my love of nature, came from a time when I um, was lucky enough to take a trip to Canada as quite a young child and see um, wildlife that we don't have in the UK, which was really on the kind of next level in terms of, of scale and impressiveness. So seeing wolves and bears um, in the wild, I think that was the really crucial thing, that they weren't in a kind of controlled environment, um, like a park or a zoo. They were just in their natural habitats, which humans were also kind of sharing with them. Um, so that was really quite amazing. Thank you for sharing your insights, Rebecca. This was Hello Climate Calling. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you liked what you're hearing, please share our podcast with your friends and colleagues.